Amen. Well, good morning to you. Take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Psalm 107. We're going to start reading from verse 33, pick up right where we left off uh, last week. Um, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. And if this is your first time here or you're generally newer to FAC, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. I know how intimidating it can be to walk into a new place with new faces and a new culture and, and, and all of that. And if that's you, I just want to, you to know that you are welcome here. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're here and uh, we are more than willing to help in whatever ways we can to get you acclimated. Uh, it's my hope that over time you would be able to call FAC home. Uh, you would look at a, this body of believers as a family, and it, you would be part of that family. Um, with that, if you haven't had the chance to meet me yet, uh, personally, I, I would love for you to come up after service and uh, greet me out down here in front is usually where I'm hanging out. And uh, I would love to just meet you and hear a little bit about your story. And so with that, let's turn to God's word together as I read verses 33 through 34 in Psalm 107. It says this, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we cannot hope to understand uh, these words on the pages without the Spirit moving within our midst. We know that your Spirit is present, and we would ask, Father, that his uh, transforming hand would be on us this morning as we study your word. We thank you, Father, that you have provided your word to us so that we may know you. That you have not only provided your word to us, but you have provided your word to us in the flesh through Jesus Christ. I ask, Father, that in our time today, we would see Jesus' face shine through. We praise you, Lord. And we bring you glory. Would you bless our time together? And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Due to the dawn of the technology and information age, we take in more information than ever before. The New York Times published an article in 2009 that claimed that the average American takes in or consumes about 34 gigabytes of information every single day. How this translates is as we read and as we listen to people, um, the, the average American digests around 100,000 words every day. And this is up 350% over the previous three decades. 
We're in 2019 now, 10 years since that article was published, and it certainly doesn't seem like we've slowed down at all. We drink information from a fire hose, and we've been exposed to a wide variety of ideas, a wide variety of beliefs, and a wide variety of worldviews. And with this, the lines have been blurred. The waters have been muddied, if you will, between what is absolute truth and what is not. And now when we approach the subject of God, when we talk about God, we are forced to kind of wade through many different perspectives and views on him to get through to the absolute truth of who he really is. It looks something like this. There's a, there's a popular parable. You've probably heard it in the past. It originated in ancient India several centuries ago that speaks to our experience and what it's like for us as humans who have limitations. The parable says the, uh, there are uh, blind men. Blind men, and they are coming up for the very first time to an elephant. And they are observing the ele- elephant for the first time and are conceptualizing what this elephant is by touching it. And so you have the first blind man who is, is touching the, the leg of the elephant, and he tells the other blind man, You've, we've clearly come up uh, against a tree. This is a tree trunk that I'm feeling right now. And then you've got the second blind man who's feeling the side of the elephant, and he's saying, you're crazy. This isn't a tree trunk. This is clearly a wall. And then you have a third blind man who's kind of playing around with the elephant's tail. And they say, you're both crazy. This is just merely a rope. And this is how the world approaches the topic of, of God with all the information that we're gathering and all the exposure to a wide variety of different worldviews. It feels like we're just a bunch of blind people trying to make out who God is based on our own limited subjective experience. And so what's the solution? Who's to say that your limited experience in the the boundaries of your circumstance is any different than mine? Can't we both be right? That's what the parable teaches, but the answer to this question is in plain sight in that parable. Because as the blind men observe this elephant, at the end of the day, It's still an elephant. There is absolute truth in this parable. And no matter what the blind men say, it's still an elephant. And you can't change that truth. Now, perhaps you're sitting here and you identify yourself as what we would call an agnostic. Basically, you believe that even if there is absolute truth, Even if there is a God, it would be impossible to know the existence and nature of God. You would say that based on the limits of our own humanity, it's impossible to truly observe God for who he actually is. And in this case, the parable is your friend because we are all like the blind men. And it's impossible for us to truly observe the elephant for what he really is, given our human condition, given our limited circumstance. But for that, I have a challenge. What if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant speaks? What would happen in that story if the elephant could talk? (laughs) 
The first blind man would say, this is a tree. And the elephant would say, nope, I'm an elephant. And then the second blind man would say, well, actually it's a wall. And the elephant would say, well, still an elephant. And then you'd finally get to the third blind man who says this is a rope. And the the elephant at this point would maybe grow frustrated and said, you guys must be deaf and blind because I've told you this now two times that I'm an elephant, right? This is actually what has happened with God. God has not sat back away from his creation and just let it falter, but rather he has intervened into his creation so that we may know him and praise him. That's what we saw last week as we studied the first 32 verses of Psalm 107. We looked at four different pictures that all metaphorically pointed to how God steps in for us in our times of trouble. God intervenes in our times of distress. God, through his word, has broken in to the confines of our circumstance. Yes, we have a limited perception, but God breaks in and intervenes from the outside of our circumstance and our own understanding. He speaks to us and tells us exactly who he is. And he actually reveals himself in the fullest sense to us in Jesus Christ. God has intervened. And we see this play out in Psalm 107. And as we come to our text today, you will actually see that the psalm switches perspectives. Right? The first 32 verses are completely devoted to the human experience. What we experience as people. The four pictures that we walked through last week has you sitting in the seat of the wanderer. Has you sitting in the seat of the prisoner. Sitting in the seat of the sick. Sitting in the seat of the battered. But then we come to verse 33 and the main subject of the psalm changes. We no longer read about the human experience and what we do, but now we read about what God is doing. These verses that we read actually shift our attention from our problem, our trouble, our circumstance to God's sovereignty. It's an epilogue of sorts that draws our attention to God and his power. And I think that this can teach us something about how we handle our trouble and distress. But many times in our trouble and distress, we let the confines of our circumstance dictate how we view God. We say, woe is me that I am experiencing this. And we let that define who God is for us. By way of recap from last week, as the wanderer who is lost, I am confined to my ignorance and I let that affect how I view God. As the prisoner, I am confined to the walls of a prisoner cell and I let that dictate how I view God. As the sick, I am confined to my human limitations. As the seafarer, I am confined to the forces that are strong, stronger than I. And we just let that make up our mind about who God is because we can't see beyond the limits of our circumstances. And in our finite minds, this is difficult for us. And so I get it. I know that some of us are dealing 
with some of the greatest burdens we will ever experience. But let me encourage you to look beyond your circumstance for truth. Like the blind men, do not decide who God is based on only what you can observe in your own limitations. Many of us look at God through the lens of our circumstance and we have this tendency in our human limits to reduce God. And so instead of looking at God through the lens of our circumstance, we need to look at our circumstance through the eyes of God. The very end of the psalm alludes to this and it's great as it provides rich application. We'll get there, but what does it instruct us to do? The very last line in the psalm, consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice what it doesn't say, which is just as glaring. It doesn't say, hey, consider your circumstance. Don't don't consider your circumstance. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Shift your attention to God. So yes, I know you're going through something and I know that you're burdened and and I'm sorry that you're going through that. But please take your attention off of your distress, off of your circumstance, because there may not be anything you can do about it, but instead turn your attention to someone who can do something about it. Turn your attention to God who is outside of your circumstance, who is bigger than your circumstance. Cry out to him and turn your attention to his role in your trouble and you will see a wonderful switch, a great change. When we would travel to Chicago with the youth group when I was the youth pastor, we had to use the mass transportation. And there were often times where we would be riding on a train and we would need to get off of that train at a switching station and get on another train to take us to our proper destination. When we cry out to God, like those four groups of people did that we looked at last week, that is the great switching station where you are on a train You realize that your circumstances are bigger and larger than you and that something needs to happen. And so you make the switch and cry out to God and you jump on his train. See what will happen when you cry out to God. You will see his role in your trouble. What is his role? Well, that's what this passage that we read is all about. Verses 33 through 42 speak to what God does for those who call on him. And it's very simple. In the text, we see a transformation of sorts. It explains that God takes land that was a desert land, and he changes it into a land with rivers and springs of water. He manipulates the land so that it can become fruitful. And those who call on the Lord, those who cry out to God have the right to live there and sow fields and and plant vineyards and enjoy the blessings of God's work. All of those things that we read in verses 33 through 38 point to life, rivers, springs of water, fields, vineyards, fruit. They all symbolize life. And they all symbolize that the people who live in that land that God has provided have life. They have sustainable resources. But we're told not only does God turn the desert into a fruitful farmland, it also says in verse 34 that 
He takes the fruitful land and he turns it into a salty waste. Now, why on earth would God do something like that? Why, why would God do that? It actually tells us he turns a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of those who live there. And what the psalmist is trying to teach us is that apart from God, when we are separated from God, we have no hope of life. We have no hope of resources. There is no blessing apart from God. And there are no resources at our disposal when we live a life separated from him. Now, this passage may literally be talking about land, but once again, it is a metaphorical look at all the ways God blesses his people, all of the resources that he gives, that he provides, that he makes available so that they may experience life and life to its full extent, life to its full capacity, life to be lived how it was originally designed to be. And what we see here is a reversal of fortunes, if you will. There is a positional shift in these verses and it is fleshed out in verses 39 through 42. In this part of the Psalm, it moves from talking to about land and it actually starts talking about people. In these verses, there's two different types of people. First, you have a group that are referred to as princes, right? It's the connotation that we get is that these are like nobles, right? Who, who have uh, earned their riches and earned their power through ill means, Right? These are wicked, uh, people. They, they are ones who rely on their own resources. Right? They've gained a certain amount of wealth and they depend on only their wealth. They kind of look around and they say, well, we don't certainly need God. We don't need God. And so they reject him and they rebel against him. That's the first group. And then you have another group. They are the needy and the afflicted. This group has probably been oppressed by the others because they don't have any resources. They can't live off of what they have. They're the ones who are being marginalized. If you, if you look at this from a social standing perspective, the princes, the nobles, they're way up here. And the needy and the afflicted are the poor people way down here. But then something tremendous happens. Just like God takes the desert land and makes it fruitful and makes the fruitful land and makes it, makes it a desert, he does the same thing with the nobles and the needy. He tells the princes, you are going to be diminished. You are going to be brought low. I am going to show contempt from you, for you and you are going to be the one wandering in the desert. It specifically says they will wander in trackless wastes. You get this picture that they're just kind of walking about in a junkyard with absolutely no resources and no path whatsoever. And so they won't even know what direction to go because they haven't even been provided with a path. All of their resources and all of their fruit that they enjoy right now will be brought to nothing. 
but for the needy. God says, I will raise you up out of your affliction and I will give you resources for you and your families to flourish. I will give you life. And so we have the nobles, the wicked nobles who seem from our perspective to have it all up here and the needy ones who don't have anything down here. And God says, I am going to switch your place. There's a great ironic turnaround as he brings the needy and afflicted to the place of honor. And he takes the evil nobles up here and brings them down low to a humbling position. Really what this is saying is this is what it looks like for those who are proud in spirit and do not rely on God and reject God versus those who are poor in spirit and do submit to God. The proud in their spirit and the poor in the spirit. The proud reject God. The poor in spirit embrace God. They submit to God. They trade places. And you'll see this theme uh, etched across the pages of Scripture. Right? It's the weak that become strong. It's the poor that become rich. It's the humbled that are elevated. It's the dead that will come alive. This is what is going to happen for those who honor God and bring him glory and those who don't. While those who honor God and submit to him are in the minority... While we are the oppressed, while we are in the desert, we will be risen up in God's glory. And the proud that oppose God may receive their reward now. They may enjoy the riches of their splendor in this life, but in the end, they will lose it all and be brought to a humbling low place. And we know that this is the case, this great turnaround, this reversal of positions, because it actually happened to Jesus, right? He experienced this firsthand. I want to read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, that speak to this. This is what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus stepped out of heaven emptied himself of all the perks and all of the glory that go along with being God. And he took the form of a lowly servant who was diminished to nothing 
Jesus Christ was reduced to death, even death on a cross. But he humbled himself. He submitted himself to the will of God the Father. And now, because he did that, he is exalted above all other names. The Father, just as he raised Jesus from the grave, raised him to the highest position above all things. A shift of position. There was a great exchange that happened at the cross. There was a switching of places at the cross. This idea of a positional reversal that we've been talking about is actually the gospel. Jesus took on our sin so that we could take on his righteousness. And so now if you believe and trust in Jesus, when you come to God, the Father, he does not any longer see your sin. Instead, he sees Jesus's perfection. You were made perfect in Christ. You are justified, made innocent by the work of Christ. And when you put your trust and faith and hope in Jesus, you and Jesus switch places. He takes on your punishment. You get to take on his reward. And when you come to God the Father, he treats you like he would treat your son, his son, Jesus. He no longer treats you as a sinful enemy. He brings you in as one of his own because that's what you are. Psalm 107 points to this truth. It points to the day when the upright in Christ will enjoy the blessings of God forever that Jesus provided for us. And it's the wicked ones who are diminished. Just know that it may seem like the Christ followers are the ones who are diminished because we are. We are the oppressed. We are the sorrowful. We are the ones in the low position right now today, but there will come a day when we will be raised up just as Jesus was raised up. And on that day, we will rejoice. That's a promise. And not only will we rejoice, according to verse 42, all wickedness will shut its mouth. I think this is the best part, selfishly. I think there's great vindication in verse 42. We live in a time where the lowly people are the ones silenced. Those described in this passage, the needy and the afflicted are typically the ones that are silenced by the evil and corrupt and powerful. But when all things come to fruition, it's the ones that God raises up who will have the last word because it's the wicked who will be silenced. I think there's an important lesson in this. In a world that is constantly defending their evil ways, constantly seeking to justify their wicked behavior. It's the wicked who will be silenced. And because we know as Christ followers that we will be raised up and the wicked will be silenced, we do not need to defend ourselves because our defense is found in an empty tomb. 
Our justification, we don't have to justify ourselves because we've already been justified at the cross. Jesus is my defense. And I will take that into eternity. And so as we interact with the lost and broken world, let's, as believers, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and gracious in our interactions as we know that just as God had the first word, he will have the last word. And so in light of all of this, in light of the entire psalm, what are we believers called to do? This is the application. You think, what does this have to do with anything I'm dealing with right now? What what do I do today? The answer is in verse 43. It says, whoever is wise... Let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It refers to the wise. Who are the wise in this verse? Well, the wise people are the ones who attend to these things. In other words, these are the ones who keep these things, that preserve these things, that remind themselves of these things. Well, what are these things? It's the entire song. The upright are instructed here to see and to learn from the stories of deliverance that we spoke about last week to the testimonies of God's transforming work that we see this week. And we could take it one step further in our application and say that these things are all of the wondrous deeds and all of the wondrous works that God has revealed in the Bible, that God has revealed in his word. God has intervened through his spoken word and he has intervened in his word to take on flesh through Jesus. And so for us to consider the steadfast love of God, to to attend to these things is to preach that message to ourselves every single day. The whole psalm is about the steadfast love of God and how it prompts deliverance, how his steadfast love prompts transformation. And we're called to consider this Now this word consider in our language is weak because what this is asking us to do is to gaze upon, to stare at, to ponder deeply and intently, almost as if to solve a puzzle. If you're contemplating a puzzle of any kind, you have to stare at that thing for hours You have to study it and focus all of your mental capacity on it to solve it. And so this verse is an invitation for us to study and focus all of your mental capacity on the steadfast love of God. This says, this is to say that the steadfast love of God is so deep and so profound, and so vast, and so unfathomable that we need to put forth a lot of effort to understand it. Because it doesn't make sense. God, why? In my sin, in my rebellion, would you offer up your son to take my place so that I could take his place? That's puzzling to me, and I don't get it but I'll take a lifetime to consider it. I will devote my life, God, to considering the steadfast love of God and it will take me forever to even just get a glimpse of it. You have to understand 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the unbeliever. Many believers come to a saving knowledge of God, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then they check it at the door. They say, God, thanks for the gospel. I don't need that anymore because you've saved me. There's a pastor who explains to his congregation that the gospel is not the diving board that springs us into salvation, but the gospel is the pool that we jump into. The gospel is what we immerse ourselves in every single day. And as a believer, if I ever hope to even get the tiniest little grasp of the deep riches of God's nature, I must preach the gospel to myself every day. I must remember every day that when Jesus went to the cross, we switched places. And it wasn't because of anything I did, but because of his steadfast love. And if I want a glimpse of just a morsel of God's greatness, I must consider the steadfast love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't even hope to grasp what you've done for us but we're going to try. And so would you help us, Lord? Would you continue to reveal yourself to us through your spirit? By the power of your spirit, Father, would you speak to us even in this moment? Would you show us who you are through your word by the power of your spirit? We thank you, Lord, that we know what love is. You've told us what love is, that one would lay down his life. And so we see in the most powerful demonstration of your love what Jesus has done for us. Would there not be a day that goes by that we don't consider that? Lord, I lift up the rest of our time as we close on a final song. Would you bless it? Would would your ears be pleased? Would you be glorified? as we offer up um, uh, tithes and offerings that you've blessed us with already, uh, would that be glorifying to you, Lord? Would we come to find uh, that the resources given here today would be uh, intent on making your love known to the nations? We thank you, Lord. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.